Okay, so we're going to be in Matthew 21 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, get them now so we're not shuffling around later on your phones or on paper, wherever you have them. Get your Bibles out. In Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. So although we're going to continue moving through Matthew, I know I, I probably threw you guys off a little bit. We're actually going to start out our study this morning in the book of John to, to frame what we're going to be looking at today. So go to John chapter 1, actually. I know some of you guys are like, I just got to Matthew. Go to, go to John chapter 1 real quick. John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. Okay. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Many times, I'm sure we've looked at this text in, in, in John chapter 1, and we've enjoyed all of the really cool things that we find in there, all the truths about God, of Jesus as eternal, of Jesus as very God of very God, Jesus as creator and redeemer. And if that weren't enough, John tells us at the very end that Jesus came to bestow the ultimate spiritual blessing on us, on those who would receive him, right? He gave them the right to become what? What does it say in the text? The children of? Just shout it out. Children of God, right? The children of God. So, so Jesus' receivers are, are given the privilege to call God their Father, right? It, it's our desire this morning, all your teachers, that if you have not already, that you would receive Jesus, that you would believe in his name for the forgiveness of your sin, and that in so doing, you would become a child of God. Our desire this morning is not that you would be among those who did not receive him. You remember verse 11? It said, there were those that did not receive him? As verse 11 makes clear, not all received Jesus. In fact, the very people who were given the law and the prophets and the covenants, that the people that most zealously said, I, I love God, I, I love the Father, they rejected the Son whenever they saw him face to face. Verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. John MacArthur writes something about this. He says, Never, never has the depravity, the ugliness of man, been so clearly revealed as when the light came into the world and exposed all that was hidden in the darkness of the human soul. No disclosure of the sinfulness of sin is ever as revealing as this. How wretched are you when you resent Jesus Christ, when you will not believe in Christ? 
Again, rejecting written revelation, John MacArthur says, rejecting spoken revelation, rejecting a preacher, rejecting a prophet, that's very revealing of the human heart. But rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the most devastating indication of the depth of human sin. It is the most devastating indication of human ugliness. Our text for today in Matthew is going to take a magnifying glass to to verse 11 in John chapter 1. And it's going to show us what what John means when he says that Jesus' own did not receive him. Our text is going to demonstrate, listen to this, because this is kind of going to be key to our text today. Our, Our text for today is going to demonstrate the fate and the foolishness of those who reject Jesus. Before we dive into the text, let's remember who Jesus is speaking to. Do you all remember from looking at Matthew chapter 21? Who is Jesus speaking to? Who? I see some of you guys mouthing it. Don't be afraid, guys. It's okay to be wrong. Who is he speaking to? Do you remember? Okay, in verses 23 to 31, we see that the chief priests and elders were challenging Jesus' authority. We see that they refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of John's ministry. And then they were recipients of a scathing parable. Jesus had just told a parable right at them where he pointed out that tax collectors and prostitutes would enter the kingdom of heaven before them. And so he's still speaking to these people and he continued to expose them as God rejectors. So who's he speaking to? God rejectors, right? Who's he speaking to? Just say it out loud or I'm going to call on. Who's he speaking to? God rejectors. Who's he speaking to? God rejectors, right? Who's he speaking to? God rejectors. Thank you. I was starting to think that maybe my microphone wasn't on or something. Okay, so, so let's look at our text for today. Look at Matthew 21. Look at verse 33. Look down at verse 33 and let's read our text. Matthew 21 verse 33 says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the landowner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do with these vine growers? They said to him, Well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. 
So today in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46, we're going to see four scenes that demonstrate the foolishness and the fate of those who reject Jesus Christ, and that appears at the very top of the outline that you were provided. Uh, scene number one, we'll, we'll look at a rejected son. Scene number two, a rejected stone. Scene number three, a retracted kingdom. And scene number four, a rebellious people. So let's start with scene number one. What was scene number one titled again? What was scene number one titled again? A rejected rejected son. That's right. So look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. According to this first portion, what did the landowner do to tend to his vineyard, to care for his vineyard? What are some of the things that he did? What are some of the things? Yes, sir. He created it. That's right. So what are some of the things that he did in in creating it? What did he put around it? What did he put around it? What did he put around his vineyard? Okay, so sure. Within the vineyard, he put a tower. What would a tower be for? Why would I put a tower in a vineyard? Yeah, to watch people coming in and out, to make sure no robbers come in. That tower maybe was also a place of shelter. That tower was uh, also probably used for, for putting tools in. So we've got a tower. What else? What else did he use to prepare it? Yes. A wall. A wall. Why would you need a wall? To protect it, right? To keep bad things out, let good things in, right? So if there was a robber, we, we didn't want that guy in a vineyard. And then what did he do? What else did he do? He, he carved out a what? Yes, a wine press, a wine press. So, so the wine press was a big basin in the ground that they would kind of dredge out. Uh, the, the grapes would go in there, or the fruit would go in there. Uh, the, the juice would be, um, I guess, taken out of, of the fruit and it would flow um, with gravity down to another basin where it would be collected. And so, so this guy uh, outfitted his vineyard with everything that it needed, right? Why do you think this piece is important to our parable? Do you think that Jesus intends for people to to walk away saying, oh, Jesus gave me a one-on-one on how to build a vineyard. What's the point? I guess maybe to show that God like, prepared everything the way that he wanted it. Yeah, I think so. I think he's trying to show that this, this landowner, that's, that's a great answer, had a meticulous care for his vineyard. He intends to demonstrate that this was a huge investment for the landowner. His vineyard... Um, was carefully stewarded. It was carefully stewarded. He, he was careful to, to implement protective measures, to think through the architectural framework of the vineyard. So the key point that we should take away is what, what he just shared, right? That this guy really cares about his vineyard. Whatever it represents, he really cares for it, and he invested in it. And nevertheless, as was customary, when the landowner finished making all these preparations, what did he do? What does the end of verse 33 say? What did he do? He rented it out. Thank you. He, he rented it out to vine growers and he went on a journey. Back then, it was common for landowners to lease the fields out to those that would work it. The vine growers would cultivate the land on the landowner's behalf and then they would pay the landowner a share of the crop. And then they would keep some for themselves for food and, and to make profit. And let's be clear, right? In verse 33, we see that the vine, I'm sorry, that the landowner hooked these vine growers up. They had hit the jackpot. He had prepared it in the best way possible so that they could be successful. They didn't lay a single brick of the tower. They didn't dredge out an ounce of dirt. They didn't plant a single fence post. Who did all of that? The landowner, right? The landowner. So so the key point there is that they, the vine growers, they were simply tasked 
with being faithful stewards of the vineyard that they were entrusted with. Believe it or not, back then there was no texting, no ring doorbell camera that the landowner could look at his land through. He couldn't have a Zoom meeting with the vine growers to check on how things were going. What did he have to do to check up on his vineyard? Send people, verse 34, when the harvest time approached, look at your Bibles, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Whose fruit were the slaves sent to receive? His produce, right? His fruit. The landowner's fruit, because after all, whose land were they cultivating? His land, right? The the landowner's land. And so this is far from an unreasonable request. This stuff already belonged to him, and these were the terms of the lease, right? You borrow my land, you use my vineyard with the fence that I built, the tower that I created, and whenever I want, I collect what belongs to me, right? Seems fair. It's his vineyard. There's no question as to who the rightful master of this land was, but, but how did the vine growers respond when he sent this delegation? What does it say in verse 35? How did the vine growers respond? Yes. Yep, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. When you hear that, what do you feel? How do you feel whenever you hear that? Anger? Anger? Yeah, me too. It's not fair, right? It's his vineyard, right? These evil, ungrateful vine growers are claiming for themselves something that didn't belong to them, right? They, they killed the landowner's delegation, the people that he sent to check up on them. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. So these three different forms of evil, the, the beating, the killing, the stoning, they, they serve to show that, the, that their sin was, was hard-hearted, that it was extreme, that it was premeditated. Um, and so how, how did the landowner respond to this? They, they beat, they kill, they stone his slaves, and how does he respond? Yeah. He sends more slaves. Verse 36, look at your Bibles. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And what did they do? They did the same things to them. What are those same things? The beating, the the killing, the stoning. So take a moment to consider real quick the, the character of this landowner and whatever he represents. Out of all of the things he could have done, he sends another group to go check up on his vineyard. Consider how, how gracious this man is. Consider how patient this man is. Consider what kind of man would give these evil vine growers another chance. So the landowner sends a second delegation with more people than the first, and then we see, I'm sorry, to receive his fruit, and and the same things happen to them. And as if we were not already amazed by the long-suffering character of of the landowner, what does he do next? First delegation goes, they beat him and kill him. Second delegation goes, they beat him and kill him. What does he do the third time? He sends his son, saying, they'll respect my son. So, so what is his reasoning? That, that surely my son, they will not reject. Maybe it's just that, that these, these slaves just didn't have their respect, but my son, surely my son, they'll respect him. The very image of myself, the one with the very same authority as me, the one with the very same claim to ownership of the land as me. Surely, whenever they see my son, they're going to be ashamed of themselves, and they're going to give me my share of the crop. But how is the son received? How did the vine growers respond to the son? What does it say, guys? What does it say in verse 38? Yes. 
They took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. That's exactly right. Verse 38 says, But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Is it possible that they confused the son for one of the slaves? You guys are shaking your head. Why not? What does the text say? They say when they saw him coming, you had your hand raised? Yeah, they, they said, this is the heir, right? He's the one with the inheritance. Let's go kill him. And they, did they kill him in a blind moment of rage, like a reactive sort of thing? No, it was premeditated, right? They schemed among themselves, come, let us kill him and, and seize his inheritance. And, and if killing the landowner's son was not enough, they make sure that he dies without dignity. They make sure that he dies without any semblance of authority or ownership over his father's vineyard, right? They take him out of the vineyard, outside of the fence that his father had built, and they kill him there. At this point, you might be thinking, what in the world is this guy thinking? Why did he give these guys another chance? Having seen what they did to his servants, why did he send his own son? As we'll see later this morning, this mixture of anger that he mentioned earlier and, and maybe incredulity, we just can't believe what's going on, is totally intentional on the part of Jesus. One commentator writes that in this parable, Jesus intended to show sin most unreasonable and to show love most incomprehensible. Jesus intends to get a reaction out of his audience, as we'll see in the next verse. Before we look at the reaction of the audience, do you guys remember who Jesus is speaking to? I asked you all at the beginning, and then we went around and I asked you, yes. What's that? The chief priests, that's right, the chief priests and the elders that we labeled as Jesus rejectors, right? Listen closely to the question that Jesus asks them. Look at verse 40. Therefore, says Jesus, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Verse 41, they, the, the elders and the chief priests, they say to him, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. These self-righteous religionists can't even hold it in, right? They're, they're chomping at the bit to, to show everyone how good they are and how virtuous they are and how judicious they are. But what do they not realize? Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about them, Right? He's talking about them. And I'm sure you've been picking up on the realities that the parable is illustrating because as we'll see later on in the, in the text for today, they kind of understood. They were picking up on some of the components at least of what the parable was hinting at. Who does the landowner represent in the parable? Mm -hmm. God. What does the vineyard represent? Okay, perhaps. Let's, look at, let's flip to Isaiah real quick. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Go to Isaiah chapter 5, and let's find out what the vineyard represents there. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. I'll give you guys just a moment to get there. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Make sure you're following along, and if not, that you're listening closely. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song for my beloved concerning his vineyard, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. 
Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled to the ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the, what? What does it say? The house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So in this prophecy of judgment, the Lord makes crystal clear in verse 7 that the vineyard represents the house of Israel. He, he planted it. He made all the necessary preparations for it to thrive. But did it bring forth good fruit? No, it didn't. In fact, in verse 4, he says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? That, that sounds familiar, right? In our parable today, what more was there to do on the part of the landowner that he had not already done? And, and the vine growers rejected him. And so the landowner represents God, like you said. The vineyard represents God's people, Israel. What do the servants and slaves represent? What do the servants and slaves represent? Go ahead. His, his prophets, they were sent to reiterate God's promises to his people and warn of God's punishment over and over and over. How did God's people respond? They killed him. They beat him, right? They stoned him, just like in this parable. Who are the vine? I'm sorry, those are the vine growers, the vine growers. Who do the slaves, no, I'm sorry, those are the servants and slaves. Who are the vine growers, the people that rejected them and beat them? Yeah. Yeah, the Jews, so Israel, Israel, right? God rejectors in Israel, those who were entrusted with God's blessing and yet rejected his authority, his word, his prophets, and ultimately his son, right? They were those in Israel who the Bible would label as God rejectors, and actually it was those that were standing right in front of Jesus as he was telling this parable, right? So as a recap of this parable in Matthew 21, Jesus illustrates God's love for his chosen people, having outfitted as a landowner prepares a vineyard with his special blessing, with his law, with his covenants, with his prophets. And then he exposes the wickedness of those who, like vine growers, killed God's servants, right? His prophets, those who were sent from God to collect that which rightfully belonged to him. What, what rightfully belongs to God from his people? Worship. He's, he's magnifying also the loving kindness of God. God's loving kindness far exceeds that of the landowner in this parable as he continued to give his hard-hearted people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and to love him. And finally, he is showing himself to be the son. He's showing himself to be the son, the personification of God's kindness and grace. And so the key point is that through this parable, Jesus is telling the chief priests and elders, you have corrupted my father's vineyard. You have killed my father's messengers. You intend to kill me. What do you think my father is going to do whenever he comes back? Here's what's mind-boggling. The chief priests and the elders, they, they recognize the scandal of injustice in the parable, and they demand that the criminals be punished, right? They said, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. 
They were right, right? But by their own words, they, they condemned themselves. They were talking about themselves, right? Does this parable and the response of the people listening make you think of any other story in the Bible? What it did for me, and as I was reading some commentaries, there seems to be a common parallel made by commentators between this parable and then a situation that happens in 2 Samuel 12. In 2 Samuel 12, if you recall, David falls into really ugly sin. Do you remember that story? David had taken Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and had arranged that Uriah, her husband, would be killed so that no one would find out his sin. And then David goes on and continues to live his life until somebody confronts him. Do you guys remember that? Who confronts David? Yes, Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet. Flip to 2 Samuel chapter 12 real quick. Flip to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's okay to look at the table of contents. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 12 says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a city. There was one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wafer who had come in. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David responds. Verse 5 says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this should die. He must take restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion Then what does Nathan say to him? You are that man. You, David, are that man. And and David didn't just steal a little lamb. What did he steal? He He stole a man's wife. And not only did he steal a man's wife, he killed that man. In David's response, just like in our parable today, he he condemns himself. He condemns his own behavior. Guys, God... Listen closely, God is in the business of using his word to pierce our hearts, right? Has God's word ever pierced your heart with a conviction over the sinfulness of your sin? Maybe not. Maybe you need to cry out to God. Has his word ever pierced your heart with the realization that you need a savior? Perhaps you felt burdened by some of the things that you've heard in here or burdened by some of the things that you've heard over there, but you've never done anything about it. Have you ever turned from your sin? Have you ever turned to God? Having received the rebuke from God through Nathan the prophet, David concludes in verse 13. What does David say in verse 13? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And though God disciplines David severely through the loss of a son, David repents. As we look at the remainder of the text this morning, I want you to contrast David's response to the response of the chief priests and the elders in Matthew 21. So far, we've seen Jesus demonstrate the the foolishness of those that would reject him, and he's done so in scene number one. What was scene number one called? 
What was scene number one called? In the white shirt right here. What was scene number one called? A rejected son. Great job. And he's going to continue to do so in scene number two. What is scene number two? What is scene number two? A rejected stone. That's right. Let's look at scene number two, a rejected stone. Look down at your Bibles at verse 42. Verse 42 says, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Remember, the chief priests and the elders have concluded that upon his return, the owner of the vineyard is going to do what? He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end and then rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. If we were there, we might be tempted to just respond to them by saying, you're right, that is what he's going to do. And guess what, buddy? He's talking about you. But Jesus, being infinitely wiser than us, asks them a question with a little bit of holy sarcasm. He, he asks them, have you never read the scriptures? These hypocrites are so prideful of their um, religious religiosity. How do you think they responded to Jesus saying that? And their hearts are probably like, oh, of course I've read the scriptures. I've read them all. I know them all. I memorized them all. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 where he says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Why do you think he brings this text up? It doesn't seem to make sense at first glance. He was just talking about the, the parable of the vineyard. Uh, the Pharisees just responded by saying, whenever the landowner comes back, he's for sure going to punish them. And then he brings this stuff up about a cornerstone. Anybody know what a cornerstone is? What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone was the most fundamental um, component of a structure. It brought a structure stability, right? Uh, people would go through uh, a, lot of, a lot of different stones and would, would try to find the, the proper one to, to put at the foundation of a building, and from there, every other stone would be laid. The rest of the structure would be determined. And in this case, in this psalm that we just read, the stone that is initially described was, was what? It was rejected, right? It was discarded. It was, it was thrown away. But then... It became the most essential component of the building. What is this once rejected and later restored cornerstone referring to? What is it referring to? What is this cornerstone, or rather, who is this cornerstone? I see some people mouthing it. To make you a little bit more confident in answering that question, let's look at Acts chapter 4. Go to Acts chapter 4. Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, is, is preaching to Jesus' rejectors. The apostles have just healed a man. They've been taken to prison or into custody. And now they are being questioned. They're being taken a task about by what power are you doing what you're doing. And in verse 10, he says, Let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, God, whom God raised from the dead, by his name, this man stands before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Pretty clear, right? 
Jesus is the stone, the rejectors of the stone, the builders are the people of Israel, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Although Israel would continue in their rejection of God, even after this parable was told in Matthew 21, to the extent that they would crucify, they would kill the son, the rejected stone, God would raise him from the dead, and he would become the chief cornerstone, the preeminent building block for the church. So before we move on, key takeaways. Key takeaways. If you weren't listening to any of that, you're just thinking about lunch, listen to this. Key takeaways. Jesus is making it clear that he is the rejected son of the parable, and he is making it clear that he is the rejected stone of the scriptures. He's also making it clear that the priests and the elders are the sun rejectors of the parable, and they are the stone rejectors of the scriptures. Does that make sense, guys? Okay, in our text for today, Jesus has continued to demonstrate the foolishness of those who reject him, and he's done so through the two scenes that we've looked at. What was the first scene? What was the first scene in the plaid? What was the first scene? A rejected stone. What was the second scene right here, Broncos? What was the second scene? A rejected stone, rejected son, rejected stone. Now in scene number three, he's going to specify the fate of son rejectors and of stone rejectors. So look at scene number three, a retracted kingdom. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls, it'll scatter him like dust. Does anyone remember what the chief priests and the elders responded to Jesus whenever he asked them, hey, what do you think should happen to the vine growers whenever the landowner comes back? Do you remember what they suggested, what their suggestion was as to what should happen to those people? In verse 41, I see some people mouthing it. They, what did they suggest, guys? They suggested two things. They suggested, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And what was the second thing he said, or they said? Yes. He'll rent out the vine to somebody else, the vineyard to somebody else. That's exactly right. And guess what? They were totally right. Their first suggestion was, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end in verse 41. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 44. Look at verse 44. Verse 44 says, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They will be broken to pieces. They will be pulverized by the same stone they rejected. One commentator writes, For those who will not have Jesus as their deliverer, he becomes their destroyer. What is the second thing that the elders and the chief priests suggested in verse 41? What is the second thing they suggested? They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and then what did, what did they say in the back just a moment ago? He's going to take the vineyard and give it to somebody else. Somebody else. That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 43. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Notice that he's talking directly to them now and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The Apostle Peter, writing about the rejection of Jesus by his people and the, the transferring of blessing to a new spiritual people, 
says in, in 1 Peter 2, listen to this, you don't need to flip there, but please listen. Peter says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So because Israel refused to bear the proper fruit, namely the fruit of repentance, God would choose another people for a time, a Gentile people, the church, upon whom to bestow his special kingdom blessings. And these people would in turn pay that heavenly landowner, right? They would pay him that fruit at the proper time, the, the, the proceeds of righteous living and a, and a heart of worship to God. So Jesus has continued to demonstrate the foolishness and the fate of those who reject him. He did so in scene number one. What is scene number one in the back? Yes. Rejected son, okay. Your buddy next to you. What's scene number two? Rejected stone. What was scene number three next to you? A retracted kingdom, a taken back kingdom. Good. Now we turn to the fourth and final scene where we'll see the, the people's response to Jesus. Look at scene number four, a rebellious people. Look down at verse 45. Verse 45 says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So was there any confusion at the end of this interaction as to who Jesus was referring to in the parables? No. What does it say? They, they understood that he was speaking about them. They understood that they were the sun rejectors. They understood that they were the stone rejectors. They understood that they were the ones from whom the kingdom of God would be taken. You guys remember David and, and Samuel, where we read earlier? As soon as Nathan said, you are that man, what did David do? What did David do? What is that? He repented. He repented. He said, I've sinned against the Lord, and he turned from his sin. Is this how the Pharisees and the chief priests responded in this story? No. What does it say? Look at verse 46. Even though they understood, what does it say? They sought to seize him. They sought to seize him, to, to arrest him, to kill him. Let's apply this real quick. Look up from your Bibles for a moment. Every time you sit through Sunday school and somebody opens up the Word of God and explains what is written and you're presented with the truth about God and the truth about yourself, you're called to respond, right? It's not enough that you understand these truths. Our goal is not that you walk out of here and you can recite everything that I just said. That would be great. Our goal is that you love these truths and you cling to these truths and you live your life according to these truths. It's not enough that you understand and can articulate the facts of the gospel. The question is, do you love the gospel? Do you see your need for the gospel? Do you live your life as one who has been transformed by the gospel? Is your life dominated by a love and an appreciation for the one who paid for your sin and covered you with his righteousness? Or do you just know how to, how to answer Bible trivia? 
That's the difference between a Jesus rejecter that merely understands the truth and a Jesus receiver that believes the truth. How does the passage end? Do the Pharisees and chief priests seize the son right then and there and put him to death? No. But why not? Is it because they had a a change of heart? No. Why, Why do they not seize him? What does it say? Verse 46. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. They resisted the urge to seize Jesus because they feared people more than they feared who? More than they feared God. Let's take another moment to examine our hearts in light of that verse. Why do you resist sin? Why do you live a righteous life? Is it because you're consumed by a love for God or because you're consumed by a love for people's thoughts of you? Jesus, listen guys, Jesus was not fooled by the self-restraint of the Pharisees who did not seize him right then and there. He saw their hearts, right? And he sees your heart right now. In our text today, we've seen four scenes that demonstrate the foolishness and the fate of those who reject Jesus Christ. We saw scene number one in the hat right here. What was scene number one? A rejected stone behind him. What was the second scene? I'm sorry, the rejected son. Yes, and the second one, what was it? Rejected stone, okay, next to, next to you. What was the third one? A retracted kingdom. And lastly, we saw a rebellious people. So as we close, there's just two considerations that I want to leave you with, okay? So listen closely. You don't need to look at your Bible right now. Uh, we've we've uh, digested everything this text uh, was telling us this morning. Just listen, please, okay, before you begin to pack up. The first consideration is the outcome of rejecting Jesus, Our text today did not pull any punches, right? It was pretty straightforward. What happens to those that reject Jesus? The text taught us that what happens? They're they're crushed, right? They're gonna be pulverized. They're gonna be judged. They will have all semblance of blessing removed from them. But what happens to those who receive Jesus? What happens to those that receive Jesus? We looked at John 1 at the very beginning of our lesson today, what did John 1 say happens to those that receive Jesus? If you recall, John 1 verse 12 said, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So don't walk away this morning satisfied with thinking that you just understand Jesus. If you have not already, receive him as your savior, believe in his name, and he will bestow upon you the awesome privilege of being called children of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word as it pierces our hearts and presses us to, to respond to you in repentance and in faith. Lord, we acknowledge that although we are Jesus rejectors, that deserve to be crushed by the chief cornerstone. You have been merciful to us. You have given us a way through your son, Jesus Christ, to to turn away from our sin, to put our trust in you. God, we know that this does not happen by the will of man, but by the will of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, for changing our hearts, for turning our hearts towards you. God, help us to live a life that pleases you. 
Help us to look for Jesus' rejectors and to present them with the hope of the gospel. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.